Lord God, with those words of praise and thankfulness, we come before you this morning. We thank you for bringing us here, and we remember all that Jesus did for us so selflessly. And often we're very selfish in our own lives, Father. So as we contemplate our lives now, help us firstly to praise you, to thank you for the small things and the large things that you do day by day in our lives. And we thank you for the blessings you shower down upon us also. Thank you for the fellowship and the family we have here, for our measure of health and strength, for our homes and families, for our shelter and food, and most of all for for your love through Jesus. So we pray that you'll meet with us this morning and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, Johnny's got the announcements for us this morning. We'll ask Johnny to lead us with the announcements. And the second collection, which we'll take as we hear our announcements, is again for Young Minds in Action, and I think it's for uh, uh, hearing. So um, it's a care chosen by our young, charity chosen by our young people. We've not got our usual collection bag, so the, the first bag is for the, the ecclesial fund. Thank you. Thanks, John. As I was saying, um, meals are important events in the scriptures, aren't they? Like a, a bringing together of uh, people. Meals can be where we ease tensions. They strengthen friendships, don't they, when we sit round a table and talk. We're often told to rejoice in the Bible at feasts and festivities. They're a time of celebration, a time of bonding. And uh, I was thinking, one meal that we often overlook, I know I have, uh, until I was just reading something during the week, um, is a meal where the, the people actually had a meal with God. And it's in Exodus chapter 24. Um, you needn't turn to it. I only want to read a couple of verses. But um, it's where Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two sons and the 70 elders go up and to the, into the mountain and they're invited by God to a meal. We read in Exodus 24, uh, Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Then a little later on we read, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the day itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. There's quite a lot going on there in those verses. But in broad terms, God was bonding with his people through Moses as he gave them a covenant. 
and he goes in chapter 25 to explain how he, God, wanted to come and dwell with his people. And this all, of course, looks forward to the time Jesus shared a meal that we're remembering this morning before the new covenant was given to all people. The way was open for us to bond with God and Jesus at this meal. I think there's some lovely thoughts there. So perhaps we could sing again together now, please, from Praise the Lord number 132. All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Compared to knowing Jesus and the relationship we can have with him. going to take a reading now before David comes and uh, speaks to us. I'm going to read from um, Luke chapter 10, commencing at verse 25, and uh, Phil's going to come and lead us in reading that. Thank you, Phil. Okay, so we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thanks, Phil. Well, we're going to be thinking about 
selflessness now, and David's going to come and encourage us with some words on that theme. Thank you, David. Thank you, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, as Andrew uh, said, um, I'd like us to think for a few minutes today about altruism. Actually, you didn't say that, did you? But uh, uh, that's uh, what I'm going to be talking about. Now, it's a word that uh, you don't hear spoken very much these days, which you might conclude as we go along is something to do with the kind of world uh, that we live in. We'll see. <clears throat> anyway, I think we ought to begin with, with a, a definition of that word, uh, altruism, uh, to make sure that we all know what it is we're talking about. Um, most dictionaries offer pretty similar definitions. For example, here are one or two. Caring about other people and their needs without regard for your own needs. Unselfish concern for the welfare of others. Disinterested and selfless concern for the welfare of others. <clears throat> and all the definitions describe a concern for other people, uh, which I think reflects the, the linguistic origins of the word altruism, which derives from the Latin word for, for other or others. And... All the definitions include the concept of unselfishness or selflessness, which is certainly at the heart of true altruism. But I think that the, the best definition that I found uh, was this one. Willingness to do things that bring advantages to others, even if it results in disadvantage for yourself. And the reason I like it is because it embraces not, not merely concern for others, but also practical action to help where help is needed. Uh, as the Bible says, uh, James chapter 2, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Now, if you were to search diligently through your Bible, you wouldn't actually find the word altruism anywhere. Uh, the word isn't there in any translation, but I hardly need say that the, the principle is at the very heart of Christian teaching in the New Testament, uh, as well as in God's laws in the Old Testament. <clears throat> But do we find altruism in our modern world? Well, that's a big question. Uh, and the answer, as you might expect, is yes and no. <clears throat> On an individual level, yes, of course. We all know people who tirelessly and selflessly work for the good of others. But what concerns me is that relative lack of altruism in evidence in the wider social and political world. Think of the United States of America, for instance. 
at, at the international level, the United States has at times in the past shown altruism beyond what you might have expected. <clears throat> Did you know that around 175,000 U.S. servicemen lost their lives in Europe in World War II? Without that sacrifice, Britain would be a very different place today. And there was a time when America's leaders openly and actively encouraged altruism. In his inauguration speech in 1961, John F. Kennedy said this, My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That sounds like uh, uh, a pretty good definition of a form of selflessness, and uh, I think that's what he meant by it. How things have changed over the half century since then. The current president centred his push for power on the oft-repeated mantra, America first, America first. Never mind the others, he was saying. Let's concentrate in future on what we want. And that was the philosophy that appealed to a sufficient number of Americans to get him elected. Not good. But, but before we on this side of the pond take to the moral high ground, let's not forget that Britain's decision to leave the European Union was based mainly on the emotional but largely irrelevant question of stemming the tide of immigrants who want to share in our, our prosperity. And if you want evidence of the selfish undercurrent in British life, look no further than the advertising slogans with which we're bombarded. Um, for example, uh, PC World, we start with you. Nescafe, it's all about you. L'Oreal Paris, because you're worth it. And you can probably think of lots more. I'm sure you can. So, so what has happened? Why has the Western world in the past 50 or 60 years moved slowly but surely away from altruism and towards selfishness? The answer to that is obviously complex, but there's no doubt in my mind that it's not a coincidence that the same period has seen an inexorable decline in Christian belief and Bible knowledge. The change between the 2001 and 2011 UK censuses alone showed a fall of around 13 percentage points in the number of people who claimed to be Christian and a similar increase in those who said that they had no religion. Without a grounding in the principles of Judeo-Christian religion, there is, for most people, so it appears, little reason to operate much beyond a bubble of self-interest. In an era of increasing secularism, altruism, though not dead, is slowly dying. I said judeo Christian quite deliberately because I think that many Christians today are perhaps unaware of the undercurrent of altruism that flows through the Old Testament. Jesus and his followers did not 
invent the concept of altruism as the core of true religion. They were picking up and developing something that had always been there throughout Jewish history. Here's a message from God in Exodus 22, verse 22. Part of the detail that follows on from the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. It says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. In fact, the early parts of the Old Testament are full of instructions on looking after the poor, and in particular, widows and orphans. And it often stresses the practical aspects of this. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And in a similar passage, Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, it actually says that God will bless them for behaving in that way. And you remember that passage in Isaiah 58 when the people complained to God that they had been fasting uh, and he hadn't noticed. Do you remember his reply? He says that fasting is not for show. Real fasting is when you go without things so that others can have things they would otherwise lack. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Verse 7. To share your food with the hungry. To provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them. And in this chapter, once again, blessings are promised to those who do these things. And there's a verse in in Psalm 68 that I rather like in this context, verse 5. A father to the fatherless... A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Well, we knew that. But it's the next phrase that matters. God sets the lonely in families. So that's the practical aspect of it. But but wait, God doesn't do that directly. He can only do that through us. He can only do it if we do it on his behalf we can take the lonely into our families we are the ones whose real practical altruism can further the purpose of God the altruism of God is not dead or dying but we are the channel through which it is kept alive on earth wow what a responsibility that is And this theme of altruism is a regular message throughout the Old Testament. Uh, So no wonder that the main New Testament characters all take it on board. And you know, even before we get to hear Jesus on this subject, John the Baptist has something to say about it. Remember when he called the crowds a brood of vipers? And he advised them, it's in Luke 3 verse 8, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance... 
And when they asked him what he meant by that, he didn't suggest that they get their biblical knowledge up to scratch. He said, verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Altruism. The other John also had something to say along those lines in chapter 3 and verse 17 of his first letter. It's similar to the comment made by James that we quoted earlier, except that where James ended by asking, what good is that? John is even more pointed. Listen, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So we learn that if we have the love of God and want to show it, that love should flow out of us through selfless behavior. And then in verse 18, John reminds us, as James did, that it is what we do that matters. Let us not love with words or speech, he says, but with actions. And then there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the best known, I suppose, of all Jesus' teachings. And of course, it's a story that works on several different levels. And we often look for deeper meanings, such as the the saving work of Christ and the the contrast between his approach and the, the legalistic attitude of most of the religious leaders of his day. And quite rightly so. But let's not fail to notice that it is also a simple tale about neighbourliness, about real neighbourliness, as about uh, altruism in action. What what did the Samaritan do? Well, he stopped to help a badly injured victim of crime, never questioning whether that man's background was, what that man's background was, um, and... And we know about the antipathy between Jews and Samaritans, and also, incidentally, not uh, stopping to wonder if, uh, uh, if the criminals were still around and might attack him. He bandaged the man's wounds. Was he carrying bandages with him, just in case? Hardly. So, did he tear up some garment of his own to make them? I don't know. Maybe he did. In line with contemporary medical practice, he treated his wounds with oil and wine. And he had those with him, but presumably he was carrying those for his own benefit or perhaps to sell. And he sat the man on his donkey and walked beside him to the nearest inn. And then he stayed with him overnight before paying the innkeeper to look after him. And one moral is surely this. Here is what true altruism is about. Real, selfless, practical neighbourliness. And who is your neighbour? Well, you know the answer to that. So we've seen, I think, what, what altruism is. But I'd like to point you towards thinking about a slightly different question, and that is why? What actually motivates people to behave in that way? 
Uh, and the answer is not as simple as you might think, as we see when we look at Jesus' parable about the sheep and the goats, for instance, in Matthew 25, verse 31. Because in this teaching, people are separated into two groups, and it's quite clear from the end of the passage, verse 46, that one group is to be rewarded and the other is not. And the interesting thing, since we know that salvation can't be earned, is that the distinction is based on what they have done. This is why you will inherit the kingdom, he says, because you fed me when I was hungry and thirsty. You invited me to your home and you gave me clothing. You cared for me when I was ill. You even visited me when I was in prison. And you know what they replied? Did we? They said. When did we do that? They had not been counting up their good deeds. They just did them. They weren't thinking in terms of reward. They were just naturally responding to need. They weren't seeking to earn a place in the kingdom. They were unconsciously displaying the character that God is seeking. And I think that's very telling. Now, it's quite clear that this question, why are people altruistic, is a complex one. It's clear because it's generated a huge amount of research and writing by academics and by theologians alike. It has been suggested, and, and this is at the heart of most of the debate, that there is actually no such thing as true altruism. And I think it's a proposition that we need to recognise and think about in deciding our own personal attitude. The argument goes like this. No act of sharing or helping or sacrificing, so it says, can ever be truly altruistic because the person doing it does receive a reward, which comes from uh, in the form of, of personal satisfaction or personal Gratification, in other words, it makes you feel good about yourself. Now, before you, you leap to reject that hypothesis, and I do reject it, uh, or at least I, I feel that it misses the point, it has to be said that there is compelling evidence from academic research that altruism makes you feel good. Um, without going into the details, one study uh, carried out at the University of Miami, for example, discovered that among older people, those who volunteered had higher levels of life satisfaction and will to live and lower levels of anxiety and depression. So it is something that we, we have to think about. Well, so far, we've, we've talked mostly about giving people help with their physical needs, and rightly so, because the Bible emphasises it over and over again. Interestingly, the, the official Christadelphian line typically used to be, and, and no doubt still is in some quarters, that our, our primary responsibility is to help people to recognise and to satisfy their spiritual needs. I, I think this is perhaps largely because of, of God's instructions to Ezekiel about being a watchman for the people. If you remember it, it's in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. If, says God... If I tell sinners that they will die because of their sins and you don't try to dissuade them from sinning, they will die for their sins and I will hold you responsible for their death. 
On the other hand, verse 19, if you warn them and they still don't turn from their sins, they will die, but you will have saved yourself. And it must be important because it's actually repeated pretty much word for word in Ezekiel 33. But is it altruism? It's difficult, isn't it? It almost seems to be what we might call altruism under threat. And it certainly sounds like the not entirely altruistic approach that the psychologists point to. Do this and it will benefit you. That barely meets, I think, the definition of altruism. The only alternative view of the passage is do this or else, which hardly characterises the kind of God that Jesus showed us and that we're trying to show to others. Surely what we're aiming toward is what I'll call unforced altruism. And in a way, that shouldn't be too difficult because in this, as in everything else, we have the perfect example in Jesus. Yes, I know that Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But I don't think that we, or his heavenly father, would begrudge him that vision as he performed the greatest act of altruism of all time. He gave up his life and the consequences for all of us are beyond measure. Did he receive a reward? Well, yes, I suppose he did. But did he ask for a reward? No. Simply, he did what was the right thing to do. He did it for the sole benefit of others, like you and me, whose spiritual need was and is so great, and whose need he, and only he, could meet. He knew that. Did he have any doubt? Well, yes, I guess so, in Gethsemane, but only very briefly. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And I think that that record of his Gethsemane prayer is itself really important, just in case we should think, as the psychologists might, that he was somehow getting a good feeling about it. Jesus did at his death what he'd been doing all his life. He gave himself for others. Can we match that? Probably not, but we can try. But I hope that what we can aim for, so to speak, is to do it without having to try, without even thinking about it, like those on the right hand in Jesus' parable who said, We did all that. Did we really? For me as well, uh, the selflessness of Christ shows of not only his love, but of God's love for us as well. And I'd like us to sing that uh, song that talks about the love, such love, in, in Praise the Lord, number 103. 
And the third verse reminds us, such love springs from eternity, such love streaming through history, such love, a fountain of life to me, O Jesus, such love. As David pointed out, Jesus didn't get a feel-good factor as us, he did it because he really cared about us, about us each one. Share this meal together now and break bread and drink wine. But before we partake of the bread, we've asked Charles, please, to come and lead us in giving thanks. Lord Jesus, Lord, look what you've done for us. Lord, your life surpasses any definition. Those years that you trod the roads of the land, teaching, caring, feeding, giving, giving, and giving. And it all led to this, Lord Jesus, that you would give yourself up for people who just aren't worth it, who just keep on making mistakes, who keep on failing. Yet you still kept on giving. Lord, what an example you've given us Help us to try and walk in your footsteps. Amen. We read, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Please to come and lead us and give you thanks for the wine. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we we just want to open ourselves to you to say thank you. Thank you for your life, the life that you surrendered that you gave so that we too might have life and have that life abundantly. Lord, we, we fall short of the, the level that you have, the standard that you have set in front of us. But Lord, we're, we know that you want us to, to grasp hold of the goodness that you have poured out into our lives, to share in it. And Lord, it is through your sacrifice that, that we can, that we have hope, and that we have power the power of your resurrection. Help us to receive that this day, to, to live in it, and to live in the way that you want us to live. 
caring and loving. Being good Samaritans for those that we meet in our day-to-day lives. Please bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Then Jesus took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The Samaritan that um, David reminds us about in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think also saw some perhaps good in this victim of the assault that he came across on his travels uh, and took pity and in the week I was reminded of um, the words we read in Corinthians for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. And it's these deeds that Jesus talked about when he said, you did this, and people said, well, when did we do that? And it was because this goodness, this light came from God through these earthen vessels. And I think that's a good thought for us to take away. It means that everybody we perhaps come across has treasure in them. And perhaps we might think that there isn't any treasure in certain people. They're not worth it. We might make that decision. I don't know. But this treasure comes in flawed vessels and we're all flawed aren't we we're flawed earthen vessels and it's up to us like the Samaritan to look for that treasure and acknowledge that God values it in every one of us there's something there that God values and we can do that by our actions and through our actions God and Jesus are acknowledged not us, the, the uh, earthen vessels, but it's the, it's the goodness of God that is acknowledged. So there's always something we can do, no matter how small. Even that cup of cold water we read about. So I thought it would be good to finish with uh, our closing hymn, number 44, from Praise the Lord. And the, uh, the final verse is, As salt, are we ready to savour? In darkness are we ready to be light. God's seeking out a very special people to manifest his truth and might. So here I am, totally available.
Lord God, when we think like that, in the words of that song, I know I do, I think we all realise that often we're not wholly available. And we look back in a fleeting moment, an opportunity is gone, and we think, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? And we never learn. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that we might work towards that being wholly available for you in the week ahead. Think of ways in which we can do something for you, no matter how small, no matter how unnoticed. Because we've thought this morning of how much your lovely son Jesus did for us. And help us to love you so that in a way we we try and respond as best we can. So we thank you for the hope that you put in our hearts. And we pray now that we might be more able to do these little things day by day that show that that light somewhere in our lives is burning. And that salt helps influence things that go on around us. That salt which is the word of Jesus. So be with us, Lord. We all face different situations in the week ahead, but you are there alongside each one of us, and we thank you for that. Amen.